Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. Uh, on the show this week, we thank God or the Governor of the Bank of England that we have a show at all, given there were times in the last few days where it looked as though the whole thing might be coming to an end, not with a bang, but with collateral calls. Uh, if you believe some papers and politicians, it all kicked off with the announcement of a small and probably cost-neutral proposal to cut a few pennies from the top rate of tax. This is because it would be inconvenient to blame the few hundred billion pounds stuffed into the well-used money cannon and fired at the energy market in the belief that price caps are a solution and not the cause of present discontents. But what of pension schemes themselves? Were they really about to bring the economy crashing down? Did the Bank of England really have to reverse its quantitative tightening to keep them afloat? And what lessons, if any, will be learned by regulators, not to mention the schemes themselves about the future of LDI? I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter at Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by David Fogarty, Director at Dalriada Trustees, and by Sam Roberts, Director of Investment Consulting at Cartwright, uh, to discuss all this and more. And thank you both very much for joining me. We will kick off uh, with where it all went wrong, I think is probably the best place to start, a little retrospective. We probably won't start at the beginning of the beginning, because I imagine that's a few sort of years in the making. But if we go at the beginning of the crisis proper, I was on holiday when that all kicked off, but I gather the markets didn't react all that kindly to Quasi Quarting's uh, not a particularly mini budget. And we almost fell off a cliff market-wise. Falling bond prices, let's see pension fund collateral calls, threatened to trigger a doom spiral. So the bank went on a bond buying spree and apparently cured the alcoholism with a bit more vodka. Before we get on to the response of the banks and the regulators, uh, that's a very broad brush thing. And as I say, I was on holiday, so I missed most of this excitement. Sam, if I start with you, where were you sort of sitting when, when all of this happened? Is, is that summary of the beginning a fair one? I imagine it's a bit more complicated than that. How, how did this all begin? That's a good overview and we can dig into some of the details. So yes, that mini budget, which we, which some of it was anticipated in, in the weeks leading up, because there obviously have been that conservative leadership election. And so the odd snippet here or there had slipped out, but it still took the markets by surprise. So I was, I was probably looking at the screens thinking, oh, guilt is advising. That's good. That's generally good for pension schemes across the board. Good to see guilt is advising on the 23rd of, of September. And then as you say, uh, I mean, I think the numbers bandied about at the time was something like 200 billion worth of extra borrowing. So roughly 150 of to the energy cap. And uh, I think it's 45 or 50 for the tax cuts. And it seems to be the tax cuts that frightened markets. And they got concerned about whether they wanted to lend money to the UK government for those things. Um, so, so just a week before the budget, Guilt yields, 20-year guilt yields were 3.5%, just to try and put some of this in perspective. And then a couple of days after, there was a weekend in the middle, but a couple of days afterwards, on the 27th September, guilt yields were 5%. So that's a pretty large jump. In fact, the largest jump we've seen for a long, long time. So that was that's what shocked the markets. We'll get onto the LDR leverage in a minute, I imagine, but that's the setting some of the scene. Just maybe then contributing to that, certainly as professional sort of trustees, We've been sort of watching through this year as guilt yields have slowly climbed. As Sam said, we've generally been looking at that as a good thing because in terms of the assessment of our liabilities has been falling, our funding levels have been going up, generally speaking, and deficits have been reducing. We have been thinking through that time, okay, well, at some point, should we be thinking of increasing our hedge ratio? Should we be thinking about protecting the gains that we've seen, but they're they're difficult calls 
but certainly our focus on the Friday and the run up to the Friday was that generally speaking, rising guilt yields was a good thing, but it still needed to fit into the equation of overall risk management and what we were thinking about the rest of the asset strategy. And then maybe if I keep going in terms of the Bank of England and then can hand back to Sam, like, you know, so actually it was on a call and I'd looked at the screen 15 minutes before and then I looked at it 15 minutes later and I refreshed the screen because I couldn't believe what I was after seeing because the reverse had just happened. Uh, yields fell circa 100 basis points very, very quickly. And that, of course, meant that funding in the schemes where we act as trustee and, and other schemes had suddenly sort of reverted. Funding levels had fallen right back down. And my initial reaction was one of, why the hell have they done that? Like, what? So, and I think that, you know, through all of last week, information's been a challenge. And our suspicion or view was that there was a lot of conversations going in the background between asset managers, their regulator, and the Bank of England. And their fear about contagion, it was, if you like, stimulated by the fallen yields. But the fundamental problem was that they had a setup where they had too high leverage and not sufficient access to cash in terms of, you know, for collateral purposes, and also didn't have the mechanics in place to tee up conversations with investment advisors and with trustees to make decisions in a short period of time. So there was a whole collection of problems that were just brought to light because of the fallen yields. And I think that's that's a that's a good overview of where we were when this happened. If we discuss then, obviously the Bank of England's response was to to as I say reverse its quantitative um, tightening, and it was the bond buying program, which it said stabilised the markets. And I thought that there were a couple of interesting things that we might want to you know try and unpack about this. In the first place, is was it as as necessary as perhaps we we've been told that it was? And David, we were discussing before I hit the record button as to whether some of the media reports about this this doom spiral or the doom loop or the, you know the general contagion were, were as accurate as, as they might have been. I will I'll come back to you, David, first on this if that's all right, just to sort of refresh on on what we we're talking about earlier. So from where you from where you're sitting, the Bank of England's response. I mean, was the Bank of England's response necessary to begin with, and and was it as necessary as we sort of were led to believe it was in terms of averting a wholesale crisis and an economic meltdown? Yeah, very difficult question to answer. I think that you have to look at it through two kind of lenses, and one is sort of a macro lens. My answer would probably be no, and that schemes that were well-governed, had clear risk management in place, had sound thinking about collateral and leverage, had attentive advisors and strong trustee groups. Other than a big fright given by the media, they were all fine. But in a crisis, you're often not protecting the majority, you're protecting the minority. And I think from that sort of viewpoint, intervention was probably necessary because there's a whole bunch of products in the marketplace, asset managers, um, trustee setups and investment setups that just wouldn't have functioned properly. And we would have ended up in a situation where stuff just would have stopped working, a whole bunch of technical stuff, which we might come on to in a moment. So I think in essence, it was important that they stepped in. I say that kind of in hindsight, having been surprised that they had done it in the first place. And stepping in, interestingly, has brought some calm. But I think it's still, if you sort of look to yields today, what you can kind of infer is that the markets 
kind of heading back up in the direction of where it was, but on a slow and steady basis rather than in a minute by minute basis. And I, I think my final point, and it sort of was interesting if you read the press reports and so on, which are now clearer, is that all the commentary from the Bank of England subsequently has been they're not trying to drive where yields should be and they're not buying yields regardless of price or gilts regardless of price. They're actually trying to ensure the market works efficiently, which is perhaps different than the rhetoric that we saw from the initial announcements. On the 28th, when the Bank of England stepped in, so I was actually in a client meeting at the time, and I'd just been having a conversation with trustees saying, you know, the last couple of days, givers have gone up dramatically um, and explained the implications for, for their scheme and overall it's good news, etc. And I was asked the question, well, what do you expect to happen next? And I said, well, you know, I could see it going either way. And I can see a scenario where yields continue to go up, but I can also see a scenario where the Bank of England comes in and buys the market and givers then go down and go down strongly. And then about 10 minutes later, I got a little notification on my phone, which was the Bank of England had, uh, in fact, I think I got the text from my wife before I got the notification from the BBC saying that obviously the Bank of England had intervened. And the details at that point were very sketchy. But the one word that did stand out was that they would buy in if they needed to. And of course, they're the ones that decide whether it's needed or not in unlimited amounts. So a big part of what the bank has done is it's about the threat of what they could do if they decided to do it. Um, and that's a, that unlimited word. That's a very scary word, actually. could lead to lots of other issues, which we might touch on a bit later if, if a bank does buy unlimited amounts of its government's bonds. But then you also asked the question there whether you know, was it needed. And I think this was, so my initial reaction when I got that notification, that text, was one of frustration. Because I knew that all our clients were in a good position. They had thought about in advance whether they get cash flow from when needed. The vast majority would benefit when yields go up. The others, it wouldn't make any difference. So it was one of frustration was my, my initial response. And then it was even more frustrating when I saw what they referred to, guilt yields, coming down by 100 basis points. So, which, of course, they did. And that was extra frustrating. Uh, for two reasons. So one, lots of trustees would love to lock in, I much prefer to lock in at 5% guilt yields than 4% guilt yields. So they've missed out as a result of the Bank of England's uh, intervention. You've also had some, and we're starting to possibly get into the technicalities of LDI funds here, but some of the LDI funds, the leverage had got so great on the Monday and the Tuesday, and the cash couldn't be got over quick enough, as in, you know, they literally needed it within the hour. You know, it's very few, even well-managed schemes, it's it's very rare that you can do it that quickly. So they had to sell some of the gilts in the fund to reduce the leverage down. Um, So so those clients are partially only, but partially temporarily out of the market until the cash can arrive from a different fund and they can rebuy back those units. So the Bank of England, uh, essentially, you've got to look at winners and losers. Who are the winners? Who are the losers in this situation? Well, the losers are those well-managed schemes. And David described what a well-managed scheme looks like very well, I thought, and essentially bails out the poorly managed schemes and the government, because obviously it's the government that's borrowing the money and their cost of borrowing is going up. So there's a lot more going on here, I think, than than looks at first glance. I'm sure there is. Um, 
obviously, so you described your, your, your frustration with the course of action the bank took. Uh, I guess that sort of does invite the corridor question, which is that what would you have liked them to do? Or moving forward, what would you like to see them do to perhaps redress that balance? Or is it is it the case of just picking the least bad option at this point? So I, th- I think there was, gateways were going up half a percent a day on that mon- Monday and Tuesday in particular. So I can see the logic. I can see the benefit of having essentially having some kind of circuit breaker. The issue wasn't, I don't think, as far as I could tell, the issue wasn't that pension schemes suddenly wanted to sell a load of gilts. The problem was that pension schemes needed to get cash from somewhere else to get into the LDI funds to maintain the same demand for gilts. And in fact, at high yields, probably buy even more. So it was an operational issue, not rather than an investment issue. So what the pension schemes need is time, just time to move that cash from A to B. So I can see the sense in having a circuit breaker. Uh, which is essentially what they've done. I think it would have been a circuit breaker where they stopped yields rising further than they were, let's say, at the time of the announcement on that fateful Wednesday morning. I can sort of get that. You So everyone freeze, sort out your cash flows, and then we'll go again. I, could, I can see that. But the problem is that they drove yields down. So maybe if we're being generous, it, it was just a clumsy statement by the Bank of England. And that's what created the clumsiness that created the winners and losers. Fair enough. Uh, David, any last thoughts before we move on to the, uh, well, I think we're transitioning into what comes next, aren't we, I think, but any, any thoughts on what you just heard there? Yeah, I think Sam's point about circuit breaker was sort of, as, as he put it, it's kind, it was kind of necessary in the ecosystem that currently exists. But I think the sort of, it's important to understand that you've got to change the ecosystem because circuit breakers probably don't work generally going forward. You need to make sure that if this sort of situation arose, which if you stand back from it, you could argue was more about sort of geopolitical issues, generally sort of interest rates rising, like a long guilt yield of five shouldn't really surprise anybody if you think that base rates may get to five or six in the next sort of 12 or 18 months. The outcome in the market wasn't really a surprise. The surprise was the fact that the pensions ecosystem was not able to cope with the speed at which it got there. So then the learning from that, and I guess we're moving on to the other pieces, you've got to break down the different components and you you have to figure out a system that's more, you know, immune to massive changes in financial conditions. Then the obvious things are, Sam talked about schemes having a t- having time to address sort of collateral calls. And again, he's not, he's not wrong about that. The other way to think about that issue is perhaps LDI needs to be capped off in terms of leverage. Perhaps it's a bit like limits at casinos or whatever. You should only have the leverage that you can afford to address in a very short period of time. And I think the products had sort of, to an extent, been sort of oversold and became more and more the fashion to have LDI and then once people were convinced about the logic of it, they wanted higher hedge ratios without really recognizing the extent to which they should be deploying capital to support that. You can't sort of hedge all your risks and chase return all at the one time. You have to make some, some tough choices. So less leveraged LDI and then always having access, direct access to collateral if that was to run out and a system of governance which connects the fund managers with trustees who are decision makers but with investment consultants in that loop so again 
the fact there are 4,000 plus DB schemes, that became a big issue here because there's only six or seven LDI managers. So they were dealing with, on average, 200 individual scheme collateral calls every day, three days in a row. And the ability of a team of 10 people to address that, that just the maths of that doesn't work. So you, you have you have to rethink some of those collateral things, but the operational stuff has to be really rethought as well. Yeah, that sort of scenario, future scenario thinking, um, I think it is important. On a lot of our schemes, if not all of them, they've pre-agreed in advance where they're going to get cash from in the event of cash calls or benefits being paid. And that takes out a big chunk of the potential time that you need. Um, so there's no need for extra advice and so on. That's, that's really helpful. So thinking about these things in advance, automating what you can. I think I agree with David. I think lower leverage within the LDI funds is is inevitable and is already happening. Um, so we've already had various emails from most, if not all, of the, uh, the LDI fund managers saying we are reducing the leverage in the funds and we're going to call for more cash. Of course, the, the issue there is they are calling for, for more cash after they've called for an awful lot of cash already. So it's for those schemes that really had a relatively slim liquid assets, they're having to know where they're going to go next. Um, are they going to have to sell some equities? Is that going to then put pressure on uh, the technical provisions basis if uh, if you're taking out too much growth potential from the assets? So there's, there's sort of the immediate stuff in terms of what can happen, but then there's knock-on consequences in terms of funding. Uh, potentially, it could fall into covenant, um, but also the impact on other asset classes across. You know, you've got however many hundreds of billions that were invested in LDI, in gilts and swaps, and they're all calling for more cash. And that cash is generally coming from corporate bonds or short, shorter dated corporate bonds, possibly some equities. There'll be some rebalancing. There'll be some asset classes where they have no choice. They've only got one asset they can sell. Even if they take a haircut, they're having to sell that. So you've got a lot of selling pressure on other asset classes. And not all of that has, has fed through yet. So we do a lot of bulk annuity work. And one of the key things that you want to know when you're doing a transaction is, can you definitely get the cash when you want it to pass it to the insurer? So, you know, where we've got clients where they are looking to do that in the near future, and by the near future, I'm talking about the next few months, they should seriously be thinking about selling that, you know, it might be property or something else, which are already starting to be gated. Sell that now. Just make your liquidity as certain as you can be, even if you're not 100% sure that you're going to buy out in, in X months' time. So it's these, there's lots of knock-on, probably there's lots of other knock-on consequences, I imagine, as well, David. You've got any? No, I, I agree with you. It's a sort of the industry, which is like consultants and, and trustees and the like, are focused this week and next week on the liquidity question, as Sam says. But actually, we're all probably thinking, my God, this crisis does not end on the 14th of October because we have so many other big questions to answer. So Sam talked about, you know, does the valuation basis need to change? Does the funding need to change? Uh, what about the other, other assets we have? Can we still invest in illiquid assets? Is that still is still doable for a subsection of pension funds because of the lack of liquidity they have? There's all sorts of other knock-on points from the change in yields. You know, transfer values fell have fallen probably you know thirty percent in the last kind of month or so. And dealing with members' queries around transfer values, that's an act in itself. We have some schemes that set transfer values quarterly. Some set them monthly. 
maybe we need to start setting transfer value assumptions weekly if there's going to be so much volatility. We've had a debate in the UK for 20 years about commutation factors, how they're, they're unfair and not generous enough. But now we find that yields are higher than they were in the noughties. They're sort of back to pre-2010 sort of levels. So that whole debate about commutation comes back back around. So trustees and advisors and sponsors have a hell of a lot of things to address over the coming months. It's not just the next week. It's worth remembering, just to put it into context, of course, something we mentioned earlier, which is, okay, you're going to have you need more cash to put into your LDI, but your funding position has almost certainly improved. So you, you can afford to not have as much inequities or whatever it might be, those growth assets, because the two things are happening at the same time. Excellent. Well, I'm conscious I'm probably trespassing on both of your times. So just one more uh, quick question from me, if, if that's okay. Obviously, we, we've talked about some of the knock-on consequences. There have been calls and suggestions that maybe the pensions regulator should take a, a stronger line and get more involved in future on, on to sort of regulating LDI strategies and the like. Sort of conscious that the regulators have been pushing schemes toward more illiquid assets, which at the moment doesn't now seem like the wisest thing to have done. But is there an argument for stricter regulation of LDI, as you see, for example, in insurance, where you know, I think they are bound by slightly more rigorous standards than perhaps pension schemes are? Where would both of you stand on, on the point of, of the regulator getting more involved? And I'll come to Sam first, if that's OK. Well, the short answer is no. I don't think the regulator should be getting involved in that. I think top-down solutions in particularly in these sort of scenarios will not work out well because you'll get you'll end up with a position where everyone's doing the same thing even more than they are now um, at least what they're doing now is because they're thinking about risks and they're trying to manage those risks in in similar sorts of ways so I don't think it'll be helpful for them for them to get involved they've historically been very keen on LDI and for good reason they want that risk to be managed particularly where you've got weak or tending to weak covenants uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether their view changes uh, as a result of what's happened in the last couple of weeks. And, and David, any final final thoughts before we close? Yeah, so I uh, concur with Sam. I think it's the FCA should be sort of supervising these sorts of products. I think they probably need to do more. I think there are a lot of big macro questions and TPR will have a big influence on them, including, for instance, the new funding regime. Is that still an obvious place to go if that funding regime is going to, from a risk management point of view, corral all of UK DB plans into a very narrow investment universe of just gilts and corporate bonds? And and if there aren't enough of those assets to go around, which there wouldn't be today, the government might borrow a lot more money, but there, there is not enough physical gilts to satisfy UK DB schemes on an unlevered basis then you have to ask yourself the question, well, should the whole of the UK DB plans be investing on a levered basis? Because that's a little bit like a Ponzi scheme sort of cards. That's the sort of thing where if you get a crisis, it just all falls in a, in a, in a heap. So I think there are some big questions for TPR to sort of help guide and figure out where they're going to draw the boundaries, if you like, in terms of you know, future regulation. I think if we look at it on a macro basis, then I do not want to give them any ideas, but there is a massive incentive from the government and regulators to force pension schemes to invest X percent in gilts. That creates some extra, albeit artificial, demand um, for those schemes that are below that, whatever that percentage is. And of course, they're looking for demand because yields are going up. So that's a risk I see in the future. 
Indeed, well, I think um, the future is going to be a pretty packed one. We probably could have done a two-hour podcast on this today, but um, I thank you for saying so the time you did set aside. I think we managed to cover at least some of the bases very well. I'm sure we'll be coming back to this for months on end, so that's, that's uh, keeping me in gainful employment, if nothing else. Uh, that does bring us to the close of the, the programme, so thank you to Sam and to David for their time. Thank you to our listeners for listening to us, and we'll, as ever, be back in two weeks' time, and God knows what the state of the economy will be then, but uh, we look forward to finding out if we're still around. We hope we'll see you then. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.